You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's bow in prayer before we begin. Our gracious God, it is in Your Word that we come to know You and see You in a saving way. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself in the pages of Scripture, and it is our desire that in looking at Scripture this morning that we might behold the face of Christ and through seeing Him behold the glory of our great triune God. We pray that You would use our sight of that glory to, to sanctify us in the truth and to conform Your people to the image of Christ. Make us more like our Savior, we pray. Fill our hearts with wonder, love, and affection for Him. And may You send Your Spirit today to be our guide. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We'll turn to John and the 12th chapter. 12th chapter of John's Gospel. And while you're turning there, I'll make a couple of uh, quick corrections to something in the bulletin. There are just two things wrong in the bulletin. Uh, the title of the message and the text of the message. Other than that, it's it's all right. And uh, Marcia recognized that the t- title was wrong after she had printed the bulletin. And I said, don't worry about it. Nobody remembers the title anyway. But you might remember that the text is wrong as well. So we are actually looking today at verses 44 through the end of the chapter, verse 50, not just uh, verse 46, 44 through 50. So I will read it together. Follow along in your Bibles, John chapter 12. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is that which will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. You'll notice just reading through that, that that is a longer passage of Scripture than we might be accustomed to taking on a Sunday morning. And uh, though we could divide that up into two or three sermons, these these verses, these seven verses, really stand as a summary, as it were, at the end of the public ministry of Jesus. So these verses, in some ways, in, in, encapsulate everything that has come in the first 12 chapters. So it, it's better, though we could divide it, I think it is better for us to take it all as a whole and uh, kind of see that as we work our way through it. One of the things that comes up, in one of the questions that's raised in connection in terms of these verses, is when did Jesus say this? When were these words spoken? Some people try and connect verses 44 to 50 with the discourse which ended, or seems to end, at least in verse 36. You see in verse 36, Jesus says, While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. And then John goes on to explain the the unbelief, the response of unbelief, and then the response of some who did believe but were cowardly. We looked at that last week. So verses 37 to 43 form kind of a parenthesis, as it were, in the middle of this discourse. Some people try and link verse 44 with verse 36. But the problem with that is that John says at the last half of verse 36, Jesus said these things, and then he went away and hid himself. So it seems quite unnatural then to pick it up in verse 44 
after John has already said, sort of wrapped it up and said these things Jesus said, and then he went away and hid himself, then to pick it up in verse 44 with sort of the rest of the discussion, it seems kind of unnatural. And some have suggested that this is what Jesus sort of called out as he was walking away. Having come to the end of verse 30, his statement in verse 36, while you have the light, believe the light so that you may become sons of light. And then as Jesus is walking away, sort of shouting this out to the crowd so that they could, could hear sort of his closing comments. It seems kind of unnatural to see the text that way. Other students of this text have suggested that this really is a, a, is a grouping of sayings that Jesus said at some point during the final week that Jesus is, or that John is giving us in the 12th chapter. In other words, this represents things that Jesus said maybe on more than one occasion. And it may be that, that John is kind of collecting things that Jesus had said to the crowd at some point during discourses, maybe more than one occasion, more than one discourse, he said something like this. And that John is kind of collecting this and putting them here at the end of chapter 12 as sort of an exclamation point at the end of his public ministry. And in some ways, this is a summary of everything that has gone before it in chapter 12. In fact, I would suggest to you that if we were to take all of the discourses of Jesus and all of the gracious invitations to salvation and all of the signs and the meaning of those signs, as well as all of the warnings about the ruin of unbelief, and we were to take all of that and boil it all down to sort of an irreducible summary, we could not do better than these seven verses for summarizing the first 12 chapters. And as I read through these phrases, if you have been with us through the whole Gospel of John, you will be thinking back to previous occasions where you will say, that sounds really familiar, and that sounds really familiar. In fact, I would say that we could spend our time here just taking each individual phrase and coming up with a list of cross-references from passages earlier in John's Gospel where Jesus has already taught the very same thing and even expounded upon them. So this passage sort of serves as John's summary. If you were to take at the end of that final week in the life of the Lord Jesus as He is facing the cross, if you were to take everything He has taught and boil it down, this is what you have, these seven verses. And so there is nothing new here. There's no new doctrines. There's no new themes that are introduced. In fact, everything here are things, themes and doctrines and teachings which Jesus has already expounded on previously in John's Gospel. So though there is nothing new here, that doesn't mean that there's nothing significant here. In fact, this is significant. And everything here is significant. Every phrase is significant because every phrase really captures what he has been saying to the Jews for three years. So we're going to work our way through these verses as a whole. We're going to take verses 44 through 50. And let me just give you a word of structure before we begin working our way through it. It was difficult to outline this message because the structure is, is somewhat a little bit odd. Because Jesus is sort of pulling all of these different ideas, light and darkness and salvation and damnation and belief and unbelief and His union with the Father and His oneness with the Father and, and Him being sent by the Father. He is collecting all of these ideas uh, and He is really putting them out in one address, as it were. Uh, it becomes very difficult to outline it. How do you outline it topically, by subject? How do you do it? Uh, here, here's what I come up with, and this is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it will at least give us something to sort of uh, hang our thoughts on this morning. There are really two implications of a foundational truth. The foundational truth is really stated concisely in verses 49 and 50. And the foundational truth is this, that the words of Jesus Christ are life and truth. The words of Jesus Christ are life and they are truth. Now read verses 49 and 50. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me gives me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that His commandment is eternal life, 
Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And you want to sum that up, and that's our statement. The words of Jesus Christ are life and truth. Now, before that foundational statement is really said, Jesus touches on two implications. That's, that's our central idea. The words of Christ are life and truth. The implications of that statement are twofold. Number one, to believe his words is eternal life. That's verses 44 to 46. To reject his words is eternal damnation. That's verses 47 and 48. So he really gives us two implications. Believe what I have said, you have eternal life. Reject what I have said, you get eternal damnation. And here is why. Because the words of Jesus Christ are life and truth. So that's our outline. We're going to deal with the the implications first, and then that foundational truth in verses 49 to 50. So let's begin with the first implication of the truth. That is that to receive or to believe his words is eternal life. Verse 44, and Jesus cried out. Now that's a word, that word cried out is one that is not used often in the Gospels. It's used a few times of Jesus. The the, the idea is that he spoke and he spoke loudly. He spoke loudly, I think, for two reasons. Number one, so that everybody around him could hear. It kind of implies that maybe this was something that was said in a temple, in the temple, something that was said in a crowd of people. Uh, Remember, this is Passover week. There are thousands of people that are in Jerusalem, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that are in and around Jerusalem. He wouldn't have been able to go anywhere without being in a crowd or near a crowd. So this is something that he said not only so that he would be heard by a massive a group of people, but for a second reason, the second reason that you shout something out is to emphasize it. When I raise my voice and I say, listen to me, this is important. Now, I don't want to scream because it does something to your ears and the sound system can't handle that. But if I shout something out really, really loud, it is so that everybody can hear me and because I am emphasizing something as being of supreme importance. And indeed, these words are supremely important. In fact, what one does with the words of Jesus determines whether they spend eternity in heaven, rejoicing at the right hand of God where there are pleasures forevermore, or whether one suffers the wrath of God in hell for all of eternity. What one does with the words of Christ, to believe or not believe, is eternal life or eternal damnation. So these are very important words. In fact, as Jesus is facing the cross, his last statements of the recorded to the public are these words, And it is as if John wants these things ringing in our ears as we turn in chapter 13 and begin to face the cross. As we are facing the cross and we begin to work through that leading up to the crucifixion, these are the last things that John wants ringing in our ears and these are the last things that Jesus wants ringing in the ears of the public. So he he cries this out, he shouts this out for two reasons, to get everybody's attention so everybody can hear him, and second, to emphasize something that is of eternal importance. Verse 44, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Now, this is something that we have talked about in previous chapters, particularly chapter 5 and chapter 8 and chapter 10. Jesus can speak of believing in him and believing in the Father as being virtually one and the same. He can speak of his relationship to the Father in such close terms, in such close connection, that to believe on him is also to believe on the Father. In fact, Jesus is able to make no distinction. He doesn't make any distinction between believing the words that he has said and believing the words that the Father has said because of what verse 49 and 50 says, that everything that the Father gave him to say, he said, and he said all that the Father gave him to say. So his words and the Father, because Jesus is one in substance and one in nature, not one in person, we're going to deal with that in just a second, one in substance and one in nature with the Father, To believe Jesus' words is at the same time to believe the words of the Father. So he who believes in me, Jesus said, does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. 
Now, Jesus is not saying this. He who believes in me does not believe in me. That's, that's nonsense. Right? That's some sort of a Gnostic idea that Cornell's been talking about the last couple of weeks. That's just, that doesn't make any sense. He who believes in me does not believe in me. Jesus is not saying that to believe in him is to not believe in him. Jesus is saying, he who believes in me, the one who believes in me, his faith does not end with me. It does not terminate with me. But Jesus, being the mediator of the new covenant, the faith that lays hold of Christ, lays hold not just of Christ, the second person, but lays hold of the triune God. Our faith in Christ is a faith that goes through Christ and lays hold of the Father as well. So there is never a danger that in laying hold of Christ by faith, that I might miss the Father. Because he who believes in me, Jesus said, it's not just me that you are believing in, but through me as the mediator of the covenant, you are believing in the Father, the one who sent me as well. We see in other places where Jesus uses this, this uh, similar language of uh, not distinguishing between himself and the Father back in John chapter 5. And as we work through this, I will remind you of some phrases from earlier in John's Gospel, since this is indeed in many ways a summary of earlier chapters. John chapter 5, verse 44, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Did you hear that? He who hears my word and believes him who sent me. These two are synonymous. To hear the words of Jesus is to believe in the one who sent him. In fact, it is impossible to lay hold of Christ without believing also in the one who sent him. Because the one who believes in the the, send, the sent Savior of the sinners, I say that fast, the one who believes in the one who was sent as the Savior of sinners also believes in the promise of the one who sent the Savior for the sinners. So it is not just believing in Jesus, it is a faith that goes through Him and lays hold of the triune God as well. So verse 44, we believe in Him who sent me. Verse 45, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Now this is the type of language that modalists, Sibelians, non-Trinitarians love to Love to glom onto. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. And again, we are describing here, or Jesus is describing here, a relationship that exists between him, between he and the Father, between the Father and him, that is so close, so united, so one, that to see Jesus is to see the one who sent him. Now what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that we see the same person. And here's where we have to distinguish between nature or being and personhood. Jesus is not saying that I, the Son, am also the Father. In other words, if you have seen me, then you've seen the Father because I am just a different manifestation of the Father. You understand the difference between that? He's, he's not confounding the persons of the Trinity and saying I and the Father are the same person. They are the same being. They are the same nature. They're the same God, the same essence, the same substance, but they are not the same person. The Father is a separate person than the Son. So we don't confound the persons, but we don't divide them up as if they're three gods either. So we have one being, one nature, one essence, but three separate and distinct persons. So what does Jesus mean when he says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father, or the one who sees or looks upon me sees the one also who sent me? It's the same idea as with faith. When we behold Christ and we look to him, if, if we were to stand and look in the face of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we would see in him all that can be seen of the nature and the essence and the substance of the Father, the character of the Father, without looking upon the person of the Father, we see the Father's essence because the essence or the substance of the Father and the Son are the same. That is why Jesus could say to Philip, 
Uh, Have I been with you so long and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Let me give you an illustration. Jesus is not saying something like this. If you have seen Shepley's father, you have seen Deidre's husband. You see what I'm saying there? What I'm saying is if you've seen Shepley's father, you've seen Deidre's husband. Why? Because we, me, I, am one person. So to look on look on this person by one title is the same thing as looking on that person as another title. But the, the inadequacy there is that I am only one person, not two persons. Jesus is not saying that. He's not saying, if you have looked upon me, you have seen the other costume that I wear, the Father. He is saying, if you have beheld me, you have seen the substance, the very substance and nature of God Himself. And so you have seen in human flesh everything that human beings can see of the nature and character and substance of God. Because Jesus in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. To look on Him is to behold the radiance of the glory of God in human flesh. Not to actually see the person of the Father, but to see the substance and nature of the Father without actually seeing the person of the Father. We behold the Son and we see Him. So to look on Him is to look upon the One who sent Him. I think there's another way of understanding the term look here. Uh, How many of you have ever seen Jesus? Don't raise your hand. You need to find another church if you've actually physically seen Jesus. Meet me at the back. You've never actually physically seen Jesus, but in one particular way, you have actually beheld the Son, haven't you? You have, in, in the sense that Jesus mentions it in John chapter 6, verse 40, when He says, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes on Him will have eternal life, and I Myself will raise Him up on the last day. In what way have we actually beheld or looked upon the Son? It is with the eyes of faith. It is with the eyes of the understanding of our intellect. Though having never seen Him physically, if we were to see Him physically, we would behold the essence and the nature and the substance of God. And so we would be looking upon not just Christ, but the Father. But we have also looked to Him as our sacrifice, our substitute, our lamb, our eyes, our spiritual eyes, as it were, behold the Son in the act of faith itself. And so in that way, we have seen Him. And in that way, our eyes have beheld Him, spiritually speaking, and we have trusted in Him, and in trusting in Him, we have trusted in the Father as well. Verse 46, I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in Me will not remain in darkness. We're familiar with the theme of light and darkness all the way through John. We've seen this. In fact, John begins his epistle by, by laying out this theme, this contrast between light and darkness. I'm going to read you a couple of, a couple of phrases from previous chapters so that you, you remember some of these. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John, in in laying out that contrast between light and darkness, and the one who is the light of life coming into a dark world, there in the first five verses, he, he, he hits upon one of his key themes that he develops through the rest of this entire Gospel. John chapter 3, verse 19, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. In John chapter 8, verse 12, then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 9, 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 9, 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And, and sight and blindness is another theme. It's tied with light and darkness through John's gospel. They kind of tie in in similar texts. And then over in chapter 12, not too many verses ago, verse 35 and 36, Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light 
so that you may become sons of light. And now here he says in verse 46 that the reason he came into the world was to give light to the world so that everyone who believes in him will not walk in darkness. Darkness is the state in which we are born. We are born into moral darkness, intellectual dark, darkness, spiritual darkness. That is, the, that is the, the waters in which we swim, as it were. It is the environment into which we are born. And, and we are not only in darkness, but we are blind, spiritually speaking, so that even when the light shines upon us, we can't even see it. And we see the light, but we don't apprehend it. We don't see it. The light shines, but we don't see it because we are spiritually blind. So we are in the domain of darkness, and we belong to the prince of darkness. That is how we are born into this world. But then something happens at conversion. And Jesus is here describing one of the radical effects of conversion. That the one who believes in Him is transferred from the domain or the kingdom of darkness. Spiritual darkness, intellectual darkness, and moral darkness into the kingdom of light. And that's what Paul describes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And listen, we don't go back and we don't walk in that darkness because now we are described as sons of light, children of the light. We are now, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, light in the Lord. So walk as children of light because we have been delivered from spiritual, moral, and intellectual darkness. The one who believes on Christ is the one who walks in the light. Show me somebody who walks in the light and I will show you somebody who has fellowship with the sun. Show me somebody who is walking in darkness and I will show you somebody who belongs and still is in the kingdom of darkness. Now, there are a couple of applications, or I should say implications, of this verse, of these three verses. Let me give a couple of them to you. We may ask the question, is it possible that having believed upon the Son, that we might find at the end of our lives on Judgment Day that our faith in the Son was strong, but that our faith and trust in the Father was too weak to be effective with the Father? This was something that, as a, as a new believer for a couple of years, I kicked this around in my mind. And I wondered, having believed on the Son and put all of my faith in Jesus and focusing on Jesus and learning about Jesus and what He did for me, is it possible that my, my embrace of Him by faith might at the end of time that I might find that the Father has frowned upon me for putting so much faith in the Son but neglecting the Father and the Spirit? Is that possible? Could I, could I find that my faith was was misplaced? Or should I be sort of dividing my affections up between the members of the Trinity? This text actually answers it. To believe upon the Son is to embrace whom? It is to embrace the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God has actually designed salvation and faith in such a way as that I come to the Father through the Son and having laid hold of the Son... That is indeed what pleases the Father. I don't have to worry about embracing Christ and neglecting the Father, for my faith in Christ is that which pleases the Father. The Father is pleased to be honored through His Son. And that is the way it has been set up. That Christ is the mediator of this covenant. God deals with us by proxy, as it were. The Father deals with us by proxy, as it were, in through His Son. So that those Christ is not only the only way to the Father, He is the only way to honor the Father. So that in beholding Christ, we see the glory of God, and our faith in Him is that very thing that pleases the Father. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 5 that God has done this. He has committed all judgment to the Son so that those who honor the Son will honor the Father as well, or that we ought to honor the Son just as we honor the Father in heaven. So this is how God has designed it. This is, this is what pleases the Lord, the Father. Put your faith in the Son. 
Love the Son. Worship the Son. Embrace the Son. Rejoice in the Son. Get your life in and through the Son. And that is what pleases the Father. It is impossible. The only thing that, the only way that the Father could not be pleased with my faith is if it is in something other than the Son. But my faith is in the Son. That is what in fact glorifies God. Infinitely. It glorifies Him because that is what the Father intended in sending the Son into the world so that our faith might be in Him and that we might honor Him. So that is the implications of, of belief. Verses 44 to 46, that those who believe have eternal life. Now let's look at the, the implications for unbelief. Verse 47 and 48. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come, into the, come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now let's stop right there. That is a beautiful life verse, isn't it? Do you realize that liberals love to stop at the end of verse 47? And you know why? If anyone hears my word and doesn't keep them, I don't judge them. I didn't come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. Can you understand why liberals and skeptics love a verse like that? Why universalists would love a verse like that? Because it sounds as what Jesus is saying is, look, if you're disobedient to what I say, I don't judge anybody. And that plays well in a postmodern society where making any kind of moral judgment is, is taboo. Nobody wants to make any kind of moral judgment. And so that, that sounds at first glance like that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, I don't judge anybody. Judge not that you be not judged. And I, ha- I can't tell you how many people I have had throw that in my face on Facebook. And Facebook seems to be the place where you throw things in people's faces. Maybe that's why they called it Facebook. But that's what they, that's what they label you with. It, it, Jesus never made any moral judgments. Jesus never judged anybody. Now, the Father, He was that mean, oppressive tyrant who's just grinding his hands up in heaven, can't wait to get his hands on you. And when when you finally stand before him, he's going to drop the trap door and bye-bye, he just can't wait to get rid of you. But Jesus, he's the benevolent deity who kind of comes in the New Testament and says, don't worry about my father, I'll explain everything to him when I get back there. You guys just, everybody be okay with who you are, just be who you are, I'll go deal with him. He's sort of the angry man in the corner, I'll take care of it, you're all good to go. That's how some people view the relationship between the father and the son rather than seeing the Son as the perfect incarnation of all that the Father is, and all that the Son is, and all that the Spirit is. He is the full substance of God. So the idea, the notion that the Father is one way and the Son is something else, that is a completely unbiblical notion, and that's what Jesus is actually arguing against or teaching against in this passage. So when Jesus says, hey, I, if you don't keep my words, I don't judge you because I didn't come to judge but to save, read the very next verse, verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is that which will judge him at the last day. So will there be a judgment? There will be a judgment. And we hear here not only that there will be a judgment, but the the basis of that judgment. So when Jesus says, I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world, who, who is it then that is going to judge the world? It is going to be Jesus who judges the world, right? John chapter 5, Jesus said, The Father has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. The Father has committed the judgment of the world to the Son. So when Jesus said, I didn't come to judge, what does He mean? He means this, I didn't come at my first coming to judge. He will judge. But the reason He came the first time was not to set up a throne of judgment, but to set up a throne of grace. He came the first time to purchase the redemption of God's people, to gather in God's sheep from all the folds all over the world, to purchase His bride, the church. That is what He came to do the first time. But He will judge. In fact, He has promised that He will, in fact, judge. In John chapter 5, the passage that Dave read at the beginning of our service, 
Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Now listen to the judgment that he describes. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself and gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The Father gave whom authority to execute judgment? The Son. The Son. The Father has committed all things into the hand of the Son. Not just salvation, but the judgment of the world as well. He has, he has given to the Son judgment. John chapter 5 says, so that all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And then Jesus said, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And Paul said in Acts chapter 17 that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man and has given proof to all men by raising Him, that is, the man who will be judged, from the dead, and that is Jesus Christ. God will judge the world. He will judge it through Jesus Christ. That's what verse 48 says. So the whole notion that Jesus didn't come to judge, no, He didn't come to judge at His first coming, but He will judge appropriately in His time. He came in His first coming. I love the way J.C. Ryle put it. He said He came in His first coming to set up a throne of grace and His second coming to set up a throne of judgment. We await the throne of judgment, and all who do not owe Him as Savior and come to Him for grace will own Him as judge, and they will face Him as judge. There's going to be a day when, I don't know if we're going to see this or not, but there's going to be a day when all of these people who thought that Jesus said, judge not unless you be judged, and I'm not going to judge anybody, we don't make any judgments, are going to stand before this one whom they thought doesn't make any judgments, whom they thought will never judge anybody. And they're going to stand before him, and he's going to be their judge. So that is the, that is the judgment that is to come. I'm going to need to be back in chapter 12 here. If you followed me, go back over to chapter 12. Verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. Now notice the, the basis of that judgment. It is the word that Jesus spoke. See, these Pharisees who had listened to him and all these Jews who had listened to him teach for three years, they thought that if they could kill him, they could shut him up and they'd never have to listen to his words again. They would soon die out, they would be forgotten, and they would never have to hear him speak again. When in reality, the truth is that his words and what he said to them will ring in their ears for all of eternity because His words will bear witness against them on the day of judgment. And that is the great biblical principle, the great biblical principle that men are judged according to the light that they had and the light that they rejected. That is why Jesus said it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for Capernaum. Why? Because Capernaum saw the signs that Sodom and Gomorrah never saw. The light they had was was unimaginable as they saw signs that were beyond imagination. They had no excuse. They saw that light and yet they rejected it and turned away from it. The the degree of judgment and the suffering will be according to the light received and the light rejected, or the light given and the light rejected. That's why Jesus said Nineveh will stand up and condemn this generation on the day of judgment, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and one greater than Jonah is here. They beheld beheld the face of the Father, that light. They beheld the, the, the glory of the Father and the substance of the Father in the face of the Son, and they rejected that light. That's the great biblical principle. The judgment will be according to the light received, light given, and the light rejected. Now verse 49 to 50. This is the foundational foundational point. The implications is that all those who believe Him have eternal life. All those who reject Him get eternal damnation. Why are those two things true? Why is that the case? Because everything He said that He was given by the Father and said it according to the Father's will. Verse 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself 
who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus has said this on a previous occasion, and, and most of these phrases we go back to, to something that he said in John chapter 5, and, and the same is true here. In John chapter 5, uh, Jesus said, I do not speak, uh, uh, sorry, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Jesus is saying in, in, these, in these verses, I'm not a renegade deity. I didn't come here, commission myself, send myself, doing my own thing. I'm not here representing myself. I come here to represent. I've been sent by the Father. I represent Him. I am a representative of the one triune God. I am God in human flesh. And I am here not saying and doing my own thing as if the Father has got His salvation program and I've got my salvation program and the Spirit's over here trying to do His thing. No, Jesus said, I don't do anything on my own initiative. Everything I say, everything I do, are the things that the Father has given to me to say and the things that the Father has given to me to do. So everything Jesus said was what the Father gave him to say. He didn't add to it. He didn't subtract from it. He just came and faithfully delivered the message that the Father gave him to deliver. And this doesn't mean that he is inferior because he is the sent one, but it means that he, for the purposes of his incarnation, submitted himself to the will of the Father and the authority of the Father, and he did exactly what the Father gave him to do. He said exactly what the Father gave him to say. He was the perfect messenger, the perfect servant, and he never erred in it. So that the message that he had was exactly what the Father gave him to speak. So then the implication, verse 50, I know that his commandment is eternal life. Now that commandment is not some mysterious commandment. It's not something that the Father gives and we're supposed to try and deduce. Okay, which one of the commandments gives us eternal life? Is it love your neighbor as yourself? If I do that enough, do I have eternal life? Is it love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? If I do that, then I, then I have eternal life. This is not some commandment that if we are able to obey it or strive for it, that we would get righteousness. That ends up being works righteousness. The commandment of the Father is believe upon the Son. Repent and believe in Him who sent the Son and believe in the Son. That is the commandment that when it is obeyed by the grace of God, when that commandment is obeyed, brings eternal life. That phrase, by the way, His commandment is eternal life, can also be taken this way. That the commandment of the Father itself is what brings eternal life. In other words, the commandment of the Father contains the very eternal life itself. And it would mean this. It would mean that when the Father says to the dead sinner, Awake! The very command of the Father to those who are dead in trespasses and sins to come out of their spiritual tomb is itself the power of God unto salvation, so that the Father speaks and the dead rise. In which case, if that's how we are to understand it, that is a a wonderful picture of exactly what regeneration is. Because regeneration is not God sitting down with a sick sinner and saying, look, turn from your ways, and if you can do this, then you can be saved. Regeneration is the Father raising from spiritual death those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and giving them eternal life. How does the Father do that? The gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. And the gospel message is repent and believe. And when the Father commands the dead sinner to come to life, the dead sinner comes to life. His commandment is eternal life. So the Father is in the business of giving eternal life to dead sinners. That's verse 50. Now we have before us the Lord's Supper, communion. That brings us to the the end, by the way, of chapter 12. Beginning next week, Lord willing, we will start into the next section of John's Gospel. Before us today is the Lord's Supper, communion. 
when we observe communion, we are observing uh, the very things that were that were given and done on behalf of sinners so that sinners might be given spiritual life by the grace of God. So we talk in the passage that we are here about about salvation, about regeneration, about the, the belief and receiving eternal life and eternal damnation, and the, the bread and the wine, or the juice, remind us of the very things that were done in order for that to happen for sinners. Uh, when we observe communion, we are observing communion, reflecting back upon our ourselves, examining ourselves to see if we be in the faith, examining our own hearts. Uh, This is not for unbelievers. So as we partake of communion, if you are not a believer, do not partake of communion. It's not for you. And it's not for Christians who are living in an unrepentant, uh, iniquitous lifestyle and refuse to turn from that. We examine ourselves before communion, not so that we get done praying and say, all right, I'm good to go. I'm ready. I'm worthy of this. That's not it at all. In fact, our self-examination is reflecting upon our own hearts and, and souls and realizing I am unworthy of even the first of God's gracious blessings. And that casts our focus and attention, our eyes, back upon Christ. Because it is not our worthiness that grants us access to the Lord's table. It is Christ's worthiness that has granted us access to the Father. And we remember through the elements of communion that sacrifice which makes us accepted in the Beloved, which purchased our salvation. Uh, It is a holy blood. It is a precious blood. We are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, things that perish, useless things. We are redeemed instead by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So as we pray together, let us examine ourselves and then we will um, give you a few moments to pray silently and then we'll pray together and partake of communion. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.